Uh, good, good morning, church. And um, I know it's been said already, but hello and welcome back. You know, I said, I said to the first service, I said this morning, you know, I, I really wasn't ready for this, I really wasn't prepared for this because Russ and I had a conversation in the car park about well, how we're going to approach this. We're just, we're just going to treat it like any, any other Sunday morning. We're just coming together, we're going to worship God, we're going to honour God, we're going to thank Him for His great salvation, we're going to thank Him for His provision, we're going to thank Him, we're just going to lift our voices and our heart before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's going to be like any other Sunday. That's what we told ourselves. You know, and I and I and I stood and like I st- and I wasn't ready for this. It's just so wonderful to see your faces. And it's just so wonderful. I mean, we've been meeting digitally for I don't know how long now. It seems forever. But I just I just stood this morning and I stood. And I, don't know, I just I just love you guys. <laughs> it's so good to see you. It's so good to be together. And and even as Marty, you know, Marty quoting from. To 10. This is what we were created for. We were created to be in fellowship with our God and to bring glory to our God, to exalt His holiness, at the same time reflect that in our relationship one to another. Because that's what Jesus said. The love that we have for one for another will convict this world that Christ actually lives, right? I wasn't ready, but I'm ready now. <laughs> it's great to see you. Wonderful to see you. Are you well? Are you well? Yeah. All right. Um, Open your Bibles with me, if you will, um, to the book of Galatians. We'll get there eventually. There's something I need to say to you first. As uh, um, Steve alluded to in his prayer that, you know, over the past six, seven, eight weeks, whatever it has been, we've been looking at online, and I know many of you have been with us, have been looking at just the reality of personal revival. Certainly we were separated by a situation. We weren't able to come together, but of course never separated from the presence of our king. Isn't that right? And we've been looking at what personal revival is all about. And this is what our conclusion was at the end of that time. Personal revival is about this, is that we know whose children we are, don't we? We are children of God, children of the God of the Bible. We are children of the God of truth, the same God who created the heavens and earth, the same God who sent his son Jesus Christ into this world that we might come back in the right relationship with him, the same God who brought his truth to guide us, the same God who has told us that he will sanctify us by his truth. This is the God we know whose children we are. And that's the key, I believe, of personal revival, understanding who we are and knowing who we are and knowing who we are in relationship with. We are most certainly praying Christians, aren't we? We are believers that acknowledge our complete dependence upon him. We earnestly, we wholeheartedly are desiring for his presence and his purpose and his passion in every aspect of our lives. That's who we are. And we allow that God who we seek to search our hearts and to know us and to allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction that there might be that necessary change that would take place within us. We are a people who are constantly seeking a restoration to come into the presence in a deeper understanding of the knowledge of His goodness. We are a people who are hungering after his word. We are a people who are longing for its illumination within our lives. And that gospel, that precious, precious gospel, the atoning sacrifice 
The great gospel message that saves, transforms and glorifies sinful people. It is the most important message to humanity. We know this in our hearts. This is what it is to be revived, to allow that gospel message to move us and to shape us. And and because of that, we we are dissatisfied with complacency. We're dissatisfied with a spirituality that produces no living for Christ. You know, we are finished, aren't we, with careless living. We are finished with shallow, superficial faith that has no effect upon our lives outside of the four walls of the church we're done with it and we're ready and we're willing to exchange self-indulgence for a self-denying sacrificing life-transforming Christianity that's what it is to be alive to be awoken from the and as Steve prayed I believe that's what God has been doing in our hearts And last week, we began to look at what we have received. We're received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What has he brought into our lives? If you were with us last week online or if you were present amongst that little group last week, you know. You know, we've been raised. We've been raised from spiritual death. We've been given the great gift of faith to know and to trust and to follow God. We have experienced eternal life. We are currently, right now, Christian, right now, you are living eternal life. You know the forgiveness of sins. You are justified. You have peace with God. You've escaped damnation. And how wonderful it is to know that you have the very presence of the living God living in you right now. That's the gospel. And the question again is, what does a life that is shaped by this look like? That's what we're doing now. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. What does a church that is alive look like? You know, because the gospel, and I might have said this last week, but the gospel is not just a door to save us, for us then to go on looking elsewhere for other things to build us up spiritually. And there are a lot of things, aren't there, that are out there. And a lot of things, in fact, even in the church, that are really, apart from the reality of the gospel's transforming work within our lives, that people seek after to gain spirituality. No, no, no. No, let me read you something. This is a quote by Tim Keller. He said, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. We are not merely justified by the gospel and then sanctified by our obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. And so... The gospel is not just a doorway into which we enter to become a believer and then we file that information away somewhere back there so we can pull it out to tell somebody else. Yes, we do that. But the gospel is so much more. It's not just a doorway we enter into, but the gospel is the very room in which we live in as believers. 
Our growth as Christians rests upon and is enabled by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He said it, didn't he? It is finished. It is finished. So this morning, I just want to look at a few verses from Galatians. Excuse me. And Galatians, you're there, aren't you, in chapter 1? Did I tell you that? Did I send you there? Well, as you go there, I'm going to have a quick sip. Galatians is a passionate letter. It's a passionate letter that is born within the heart of a man, that is the Apostle Paul, that was deeply committed to preserving the purity of the gospel message. You see, Paul was writing to believers that were departing from the essential truths of the gospel of grace. That being that, and that being, this is the gospel of grace, that our salvation is a free gift from God received by faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and that and that alone. There is nothing to add to it. He, and of course, he declares it nowhere clearer than in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the first few verses where he says these. Let me read these to you. He says, um, Moreover, brethren, I declared unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also received, and wherein you now stand, by which you also are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. And here it is. He says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now the Gospel... You might have noticed in that verse, there's a couple of things about it. The gospel is benefited because, of course, we receive it. We receive it, we believe it, we accept it, and we stand in it. Which, which tells us it's something that, doesn't, that we never leave. We receive it, we stand in it. It's something I embrace. It's something I never, ever let go of. It's something that I never, ever add anything to. It's something I never, ever detract from. I never reduce its value. I stand in it. You know, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians because they were believers who believed and stood in the gospel. And he, and he praised them for it. He did. Let me, let me read these verses to you. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says in verse 13, he says, We thank God without ceasing because when you, here it is, you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectively works in you who believe. So we believe in Jesus Christ. And I know you know this. I know you know everything that I'm saying this morning. But it's about what you know about Christ becoming an expressive reality in and through your lives. That's what what this is all about. See, God would have every Christian, let me say this, God would have every Christian take seriously their responsibility to not only have a good past, and when I say a good past, I'm not talking about an unsaved past, but I'm talking about a good past in the sense of the day came when I believed in Jesus Christ. I chose to follow him. He is my saviour. I believe in the gospel message. Not only do you have a good past in that sense of this. Can you remember that day, Christian? 
Remember that day when the burden was lifted and the eyes were opened, the reality of the existence of God and his forgiveness for you flooded into your soul and you realise you're an eternal being that is destined for heaven and you're, and, and you're just full of joy and just full of the glory of God and it's just overwhelming. Remember that day? Yes. Thank you. I tend to repeat myself unless I get answers. No, no, no. But he doesn't want us just to have a good past in that. But he wants us to have a good present. I'm standing in this. I'm following him. But not only just a good present, but also I am determined to have a great future in the Lord that I will always follow Jesus Christ. So it's past, it's present, it's future. And it's all firmly based upon what God has done, what he's finished. See, the Christian life flows out of what he has already done. And you know it. So your do's are according to his done. You're not doing to get his done. Your do's are according to his done. Well, that makes sense. (sighs) See, first service didn't get that. No, no. No, the fact that we are told to hold fast this gospel, it also implies something else. It also implies that there are those or there are forces at work that want to snatch the reality of that away from us, of the gospel. I mean, the great tragedy is that there are so many believers that have gone after other things and they've lost the power of the gospel within their own lives. That's what he was saying in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, it's as if they had believed in vain. The gospel is no longer having its work. It's, it's sanctifying work within the lives of, of the believer. And Paul's concern for these believers, the Galatians, in fact, for all believers, is that they were being quickly moved away from the purity of the reality of the gospel to what he will talk about as another gospel. See, these believers were being influenced by people confessing to be good Christians, claiming... Hey, yeah, Paul's gospel is good. You read Galatians, it's very clear. They believe in Christ and they're saying that Paul's gospel is good. It may be a good start, but there's so much more. There's so much more. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it becomes, is just another way of imposing rules and regulations upon God's people. You know? And this made the great apostle mad. Mad. You know, if you want to see Paul get hot under the collar, if you want to see this great man of God rise up in fire, you just tell him that what Jesus did was not enough. It made him mad. And essentially that is what is being said to these believers and again to many believers today, which meant that the people of God who discovered freedom in Jesus Christ were being brought back into a bondage. People who had been free from, free from guilt and free from fear and free from doubt and free from sin and free from all sorts of addictions, physical, emotional, spiritual, free from the slavery of all those things, all of a sudden are not quite making it anymore. Because now they've been told, now they've been told, yeah, yeah, the gospel, but you're not completely free yet. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who a friend of theirs said to them, you know, you're just not as spiritual as I am. Yeah, and I thought, 
I can't imagine a Christian saying that to another believer. You're just not as spiritual as I am. You're not as free as me. You know, you've got to do better. You've got to try harder. You've got to follow the commandments. You've got to obey the golden rule. You've got to do what the priest says. You've got to, you've got to do. You've got to offer. You've got to sacrifice. You've got to... And they've been told that their spirituality is measured by their specific actions. You know what it's called? It's called rules. It's called keeping rules. You know, people today, we look around the world around us today, and people today, you know, conduct themselves in a morality that they believe is acceptable, and they believe it is something that is pleasing to God. And that's why everybody says, you know, my grandmother, lovely lady, you know, the Lord, Lord loves her, certainly, certainly. Doesn't know Jesus, but as you understand it, but, you know, she's a really good, her morals are great, and people believe that a morality makes them acceptable to God and all they're really doing is bringing the morality of God down to human levels and saying, so this is the acceptance point. No, no, no. Salvation's got nothing to do with that. Because you know why? Because rule-keeping, it always fails us. Ultimately, it's going to fail us. We can do well for a long time, but we can never be sure if that becomes who we are. We can never be sure that, hey, I'm, really, I'm doing enough. I can never really be sure that I've done enough to merit God's favour. You know what we call that? Big word, we don't like it. We don't like to be called it at all. It's called legalism. It's called legalism. Trying to find happiness by keeping rules. It can't be done. And what Paul is speaking here to these believers is a simple, compelling truth. Freedom comes not from keeping rules, but freedom comes from, you know it, from a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one who is perfect. He is the only one who is holy. He is the only one who has never, ever, in any way, in any degree, defiled righteousness whatsoever. Consequently, the only true freedom comes from him. Our freedom is in Him from knowing Him as Saviour. And so my love, my love and obedience is because again of what He has done. My love and obedience is not trying to get caught His favour. Do you see the vast difference? The vast difference and where it ultimately leads us? So let me read these verses. I don't think we've read them, have we? This is Paul. He says in the first verse of Galatians chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me unto the churches of Galatia. He says this. He says, grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Peace. Peter, John, James, Jude. It all begins with this phrase. Paul writing to the, to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, to the Colossians, to, the, to the, the Philippians, to the Ephesians. All begins with this incredible statement. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? We know what grace is. It's the undeserved favour of God towards us which quite frankly is the very antithesis of everything that Paul is opposing in this letter. To somehow suggest that we can work or even earn favour from God 
is an anathema to Paul. And he's going to use that word in reference to another gospel. It's the undeserved gift of God. That introduction tells us that peace is the byproduct of that gift, of that grace. And the truth is this. You and I, we will never know true peace until we receive it by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, people out there are spending their entire lives going through all sorts of journeys, all sorts of searchings. Even people within the church, sadly, are trying to find peace by the things that they do. Things that they do. And it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It is grace, the undeserved favour of God, and peace in that order. You can't put anything between those words. You can't put grace, something else, and peace. And you can't say grace and join our church and you will know peace. You can't say grace and, and, and you know, go door to door and deliver these pamphlets and you will know peace. You can't say grace and attend this or do that or be involved in this or go here or there or say this or whatever and know peace. No, no, no. Peace is only found, only found in the right relationship with God, and this is why the gospel message is so vitally important to be the very center of our beings. The fact, you know why? Because the fact of the matter is we don't deserve it. So we can go searching all we like. Even if we find something that we think resembles or brings some level of peace, we're still going to struggle because there's something in us that's going to tell us, no, don't deserve that. Not worthy of that. Even a pseudo-peace. But the reality of the peace that comes from the God of peace, we can't earn it. We can't bargain God for it. We can't search for it and find it anywhere. I mean, you've got as much chance of finding peace as this pulpit has of growing another leg and walking out that door by itself. It's just not going to happen, right? It's never going to happen. But God will give it to you. How much better does that sound? But God will give it to you on one condition. What's that one condition, Christian? That you'll believe. That you'll believe. So right off the bat, right off the bat, we're talking about this gospel-centered living or life. If the gospel is center, the central place of our beings, then our encompassed by the peace of God. You see, you're a Christian. Yeah, you're still a Christian, just like me, and we still struggle with that old sin nature, don't we? I look for answer this time, don't we? We still struggle with it. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 7 and Corinthians chapter 5. He talked about it. Ephesians, sorry, 5. He talks about that struggle, you know, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we come into a greater understanding of Christ's victory, and that's what the gospel is, of Christ's victory, and we get this an awareness of we get an awareness of God's complete acceptance of us and the fact that he now sees us as righteous. When we come into this understanding through the gospel message, the, the truth is this, you know, we grow 
We grow in a knowledge and understanding of Christ. The gospel becomes the door, as I said earlier, that opens us up to an ever-deepening understanding of the holiness and the majesty and the righteousness and the perfection of Christ. The gospel opens us up to that, at the same time exposing us by comparison to the reality of our own sinfulness and our need. And our greater need, but at the same time brings us into that ever deeper understanding of just how much we are loved and just how much we are accepted. Let me, let me say it again. It is a continual discovery of God's greatness giving contrast to our sinfulness and elevating our awareness of the love and grace and acceptance that God has for us. Is that better? Which brings us to what? Peace. Peace and surrender. Look, I read, I read this last night. And again, it's not important who said it. It's from a book I read. It says, when I come, this fellow said, when I come to the Lord after I've blown it, I've only one agreement to make. It's not the argument of the difficulty of the environment that, that I'm in. It's not the argument of the different people that I am near. It's not the argument of God's intentions that were thwarted in some way, I come to the Lord with only one appeal, his mercy. I have no other defence. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem, me. So I appeal to the one thing in my life that's sure and will never fail. I appeal to the one thing that guaranteed not only my acceptance with God, but the hope of new beginning and fresh starts. I appeal on the basis of the greatest gift I have ever or will ever be given. I, have, I leave, he said, the courtroom of my own defence. And we need to do that, right? I leave the courtroom of my own defence. I come out of hiding and I admit who I am, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid because I have been personally and eternally blessed. I have peace. I'm not afraid because I have been personally and eternally blessed because of what Jesus has done. God looks on me with mercy. It is my only appeal. It's the source of my hope. He said, It's my life. It's where I live. The gospel is where. I live. Look, stop and think with this, with me about this. See, the reason I can't and in myself, through my own peace, for my own, my own purposes, attain to any lasting peace, you know why the reason that is? Is because in and of myself, there is no inherent life. Now I'm talking about my physical living. In and of myself, there is no inherent life. I have no ability to make life, to keep life. I have none whatsoever. The life that I have was given to me by Bill and Val Fisher, my parents, right? And this fragile world around me sustains that life. Again, this physical life. But like every other man, woman and child that's been born into this world, the life I've been given, it's just a fading light. Now, I don't want to be depressing here, but it's just a fading light. And like every flame, you know, I, I must, we must, you must, I must breathe 
I've got to change. I've got to grow. I've got to strive against the darkness. But ultimately, I'm fading. I'm fading. And that sounds hopeless. And there can be no peace whatsoever in knowing that. If it's up to me to find God's acceptance, there can be no, no peace in that because I have no life inherent within me to convince God that I'm worthy of his acceptance and he should accept. I can't do it. My life is fading. It's going to go. And so people fill their lives with careers and 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 goals and activities and relationships and dreams and, and, and they're all good things they're all good things to do but far too many people for far too many people I should say these very things are, these human pursuits only really an act only really a veil that is there to hide that ability life is fading too fast Way too fast. But that's, that's the condition of us all if we are set apart from Christ, who alone has life. Do you understand that? See, the theologians use a term called aseity. And, and, that, and that's the sense that God is the source of life. He's the only one who is able to produce life, you know, he is the self-existent, eternal creator of heaven and earth. He always has existed. He always will exist. There was never a time when he did not exist. He is the source of all life. Remember when Moses stood before the burning bush? Remember that? And God was calling Moses to go down to, to, uh, into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And, and Moses, you know, stumbling around this, says, but who do I say is going to, who do I say has sent me? Remember what God said to him? He said, you tell them. He didn't give him a name. He didn't say, my name's George, Bob, Jack, or anything like that. No, he says, you tell them I am that I am is sending you. You know what that literally means? The self-existent, eternal one is sending you. That's who it is. He is the source of life. And here's the glorious thing to bring us out of that haze of that fading light. Here's the glorious thing. Here's the glorious thing. He wants to give you that life. He wants to give us all that life. All of us. Jesus said, remember, I am, do you know where I'm going? The resurrection and the what? The life. He believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he so believes in me, though he... Well, no, no, no. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall what? He shall never, never... That's a good word, isn't it? Never die. Do you believe this? He gives you life eternal. That's the glorious gospel. That's the glorious gospel. That's the condition of receiving grace, of being justified by faith in Christ. So what is justification? We know what justification is. Justification is an act. It's a one-time act. And it is so, so very important that you understand this, Christian. So very important. Justification is the act of God. Remember I said to you last week, 
when we were considering the gospel and God's, God's intention toward humanity, where God said in eternity past that he himself would do only what he himself would do for us. Remember that? None of us can do what needs to be done for us that we might know life. None of us. None of us. God said he himself would do what only he himself could do. It's an act of God. Justification is an act of God where he declares the believer to be righteous in Jesus Christ. Well, that means right before God. It means to be perceived as being sinless. Never forget. Never forget. This is the thing I want you never to forget. Justification is the act of God. One time. It happens in your life. It's not a progressive thing because a lot of people live like that because they lose sight of the power of the gospel. So they think they have to get better and get better and get better. And one day, if they might just try hard enough, they might scrape into heaven on their hands and knees. That's no, 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 no. Hoping that they may be justified. In fact, one of the largest organisations in the world has a doctrine of justification like that. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. Let me, let me prove it to you. Romans, the wonderful book of Romans, says in chapter 5, in verse 1, Therefore, being, hear that? Therefore, being, that's once and for all, justified by faith, that means accepting forgiveness, therefore, once and for all, justified by faith, we have peace with God, that means no longer at war with God, through how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Realise that your justification is an instant immediate transaction between you and God. Your sin made you guilty before him, but the moment you accepted God's forgiveness through Christ, he declared you as not guilty. And here's the glorious thing. He declared you as not guilty. And guess what? You can never, ever be called guilty again. Never. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute sin. It's pretty glorious, don't you think? It is pretty glorious. But that's what justified means. It means that God no longer has a list against you. And so when people start giving you a list of things that you have to do in order to be accepted by him, you can see it's in completely not agreement with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't work with lists anymore, people. No. We respond in love. Because this great and awesome God has loved us in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. That to me is glorious. That to me is amazing. God no longer imputes sin against Chris Fisher. That to me is amazing. Why? Because I believed and I trusted in Jesus Christ. Look, I know it sounds presumptuous. And sometimes it's even hard to say. I know it sounds presumptuous. I know it sounds boastful. But it's not me that's saying it. This is the best part of the story. It's not me that's saying it. It's God is saying it. God is saying it about you, Christian. It should cause me to sing. It should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to be so in love with this one who has loved us so much. God accounts me righteous, justified. And we don't want to lose that. We don't want to drift off into other things. We don't want to allow ourselves to become enslaved 
It happened to Peter, you know. Peter the <coughs> Apostle. Isn't that amazing? Peter the Apostle. I'll tell you a story. It's in chapter 2. Um, may look at it next week, I'm not sure, but it's in chapter 2. And Peter is hanging up with the believers, actually the non-Jewish believers. And he's sitting around and he's eating with them. It's in chapter 2. You can read it, read it later. He's sitting around and he's eating with them, you know. Just having the best time because we're set free, right? You know, be a Jew back then, and even Jews today, Orthodox Jews, they had all sorts of problems with being, keeping themselves ceremonially and spiritually clean. You know that, don't you? They had all sorts of rules, rules that they had to keep so they could stay clean, spiritually clean, and worship their God. And all sorts of, all sorts of legislations, you know. Couldn't eat this, couldn't eat that, couldn't wear this, couldn't wear that, couldn't sit with that person, couldn't go, couldn't go here, touch a dead body, go to a grave, whatever it is. So they worked really, really hard. And Peter grew up with this. This was his understanding. Remember in, in Acts chapter 10 when, when, um, when Peter was asleep on the roof and he had that vision and God reminded him of the power of the gospel and he'd been set free from all of those things. He went to the household of Cornelius. He preached the gospel. You know, the, the Gentiles got saved. He gets called into Jerusalem and he gets taken on the mat. What are you doing preaching the gospel? But they got saved. The spirit of God fell on them like it did upon us. You know, God saving the Gentiles. Glory be to God. Praise God, we're set free from rules. That's Peter. And so here he is. He's up there and he is enjoying a good meal with some of these non-Jewish believers who've never had to keep any rules. And he's just having the greatest time of fellowship. Greatest time of fellowship. Until, until these Jewish believers in Christ come into the room. Now, I want you to look at it like this, because this is kind of, I don't know if it was like this, kind of like this. So you are, you're not Jews, are you? Any Jews in the room? Good. You are sitting around, because COVID-19 is over, we can all hang out together, and Peter is with us, and he's having a meal with you. You're talking about the wonders of Christ, the great work of Christ in your lives, how he set you free, he saved you, you're heading for heaven, you're just having the best of time, you're sharing food around the table, Peter is laughing and telling jokes, he's telling you all about Jesus, what he was like, what it was like to walk on the water with him, and all that sort of stuff. It's a great time, right? And then all of a sudden, these religious people walk in the door. These Jews who live their life by rules, they come in the door. Peter suddenly stops talking to you. He looks at you. He looks over there at them. He clears his throat and he goes, oh, excuse me, excuse me, I've just, just got to go to the bathroom. You know, he gets up. He walks out. He comes back in like this and doesn't even look at you. will have nothing to do with you, in fact and goes and sits down with those religious types. What's happened? What's gone on? The power of the gospel at work within his life. What happened so quickly? Paul was there. Remember what I said about Paul? If you want to say to Paul, you need more than Jesus, look out. Paul gets up, goes to Peter, and he says, I spoke to him to his face. The great apostle Peter, you know. Look, he said this in verse 17 of chapter 2. He said, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, 
and we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. What he means is he's asking Peter, Peter, you think logically about what just happened with you and what you've just done in relationship to other believers. Peter, if we are justified by Christ and we are set apart from the law that bound us, remember we've been set free. The example being, again, he's enjoying fellowship with with non-Jewish believers, the Jewish pious religious people come in. He separates himself from them. He's saying, Peter, what was going on there? If you were at one time fellowshipping with us, but now you can't because of the rules that suddenly get imposed upon you, does that that mean? (laughs) Does that mean? The gospel that you spoke about, that Jesus set you free, Peter, does that mean that Jesus was making you sin by sitting with us? You know? Are you saying it's no longer right for you to sit with us and hang out with us? And what about before, Peter? What about Peter? It's crazy. It's crazy. And he said, God forbid, verse 18, if I build again the things which I destroyed. What's he talking about? He's talking about a life when he lived by rules. That's been put to death by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, for if I build again the thing which I destroyed, I put that life to death, I make myself a transgressor. I mean, I've seen it so many times in people. So many times a person gets saved. They experience the the unmerited favour of God. They're free to worship God. They're free to seek God. The gospel is so glorious to them. It's shaping their lives, but then some religious group gets a hold of them and starts to tell them that they have to do this and they have to do that and they have to become this to earn God's favour. They have to attend this meeting and that amount of meetings. You've got to go to church on a particular day. You've got to read this and you've got to do that. You have to be on your knees for this amount of hours every single morning. You have to be so much, so much, so much better than what you are. Because like my friend heard, he was not as spiritual as that other person. See, if you find yourself in that place, having to do these things to have acceptance with God, then you are building a relationship that is based upon you and your performance and you are setting yourself up to become a sinner in your own eyes. You are setting yourself up to fall into self-condemnation. Look, you've heard me say this a million times. Satan wants you in that place. In fact, he's going to tell you that you are not good enough. He's going to tell you that there is so much more that you need to do. And he's going to condemn you and he's going to beat you about the head with that bat, right? And the thing is this, we listen to it. We listen to it and we start to agree with it and we start to build our lists and our do's and and it goes on and on and on. And before long, what happens? Satan gets tired of beating you with his bat. He puts it in your hand and you take over for it and you start condemning yourself. You've left the gospel, the power of God in your life. And you're building again. You're building again. God wants you to know that building project is over. It's done. It's finished. 
The building's gone. You have to realize that by, by, by rebuilding, you are denying everything that the Lord has done for you. Think about it. Think about it. Think about what it says to God. It's an offense to him. Because he made a way for you. As Jim says all the time, heaven gave us everything that it had to give so that we can receive the life of God and the promise of God and the victory of God to be set free. It cost heaven everything and it cost you and I what? Nothing. Why start paying now? Why start trying to earn it now? Here's the responsibility. I'm finished. Here's our responsibility. We only receive it and then we stand in it, right? We receive it with repentant hearts. Let me read you a couple of verses. John chapter 1 says in verse 12, but as many as have received him, please hear these verses, as many that have received him, to them he gave the power. Hear that? It's yours. Gave the power to become the sons of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I just, I just didn't finish the wrong verse. I must be tired. <laughs> but as many as you received him, them gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And what I then started to read was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which we know so well. For by grace, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. See, even the faith to believe in God's grace and his forgiveness, even that is not of you. It's by grace it's been given to you. The faith to believe, it is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. That's what list doers do. They boast. I'm doing this, I've done that, I'm this good, I'm getting there, it's boasting. Paul said, I will boast in nothing but what? Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. Here it is, conclusion of it all. I'm wrong, God is right. I am wrong, God is right. I'm a sinner. He is righteous. I'm without any real hope. He is the answer. And in him, I need nothing. Colossians tells us, in him, we are complete. There's nothing to add to it. So this morning, in the weeks ahead, this is what I want to be encouraging us. This wonderful gospel of grace this wonderful gospel, the very center of our lives, tells us that we're his. And that our lives, well, every relationship that we experience should be lived through the passionate understanding of that reality. I'm his because of what he's done. So would you think about it? This is what we're going to be exploring. Everything, every relationship, people, Families, actions, passions, desires, the very motivations as to why I do things, they can be, should be, all shaped by the reality of what the gospel has done for you and in you. Can I ask you one question? And I'll close. The gospel, this wonderful grace, this undeserved favour that God has shown you, 
That gospel truth is in you. It set you free, right? How does that truth of the gospel affect you in relationship to the person that you're sitting next to? You take that and you apply that to every relationship you have. Justification. Gospel says you're justified. We talk about that, right? That's the gospel. You're justified. God looks at you. He's in dwelling within you because you've been made holy and righteous. That's the only way God can dwell within you. How does that gospel reality affect you in relationship? Can I say it again? To the person that's sitting next to you. Think about it. The gospel shapes us. It's powerful. It's powerful. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. And that's what it's all about today. It's who you are. It's your great love for us. It's the power of your forgiveness. It's the wonder of your grace. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the amazing reality of the joy that you plant within our hearts. It's the truth of knowing that you yourself have done only what you yourself could do for us, that none of us could do. Lord, I pray that the reality of this truth would not only just be in our minds, but Lord, that you would, Father, allow us as we meditate upon the awesomeness of this wonderful gospel, allow it to, Father, change us and move in us and through us that this world around us can see what a church alive really looks like. That's our prayer, Lord. Thank you and praise you for who you are in us. In Jesus' name, amen.